Are you looking for a talk show featuring leading global voices? Do you want to learn more about how international issues directly affect people locally? Global Connections Television presents the insights of global influencers at no cost to viewers and programmers. GCTV is independently produced and reaches more than 70 million potential viewers worldwide each week. The show covers everything from human rights to climate change, from peace and security to empowering women and girls. It features guests such as Dr. Jane Goodall, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The show also hosts expert voices from the private sector, academia, and labor and environmental movements. GCTV is available to public television media outlets, universities, and service clubs for distribution. To watch the show or find out more, click the link in our episode description. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion, and welcome to Unscripted. Today, the world unites to help Lebanon, but the Security Council is bickering over the renewal of the UN's own mission in the country, UNIFIL. On this episode, we talk to Ambassador Amal Mudalali, permanent representative of Lebanon to the UN, about what she's hoping will come out of the international effort to help her country. And we also have on the show Karim Makdisi, an associate professor in international affairs at the American University of Beirut, who witnessed the explosion and weighs in on the future of UNIFIL. This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. On August 4th, a mushroom cloud blanketed a major part of the city of Beirut, devastating the area and killing at least 178 people, according to the UN, and injuring thousands. The blast was just another blow to a city divided politically and overwhelmed by an economic crisis as the pandemic rages. I was in the mountains, in our mountain house. It's about 40 kilometers uh, north of Beirut, and I heard a massive explosion. I actually assumed it was, you know, the normal Israeli planes going over us, and in this case, breaking the sound barrier until my daughters called me in, in tears, and I thought that maybe it was an earthquake before we quickly realized that there was some kind of explosion. So I, I got in my car and came down to Beirut. Kareem Magdisi is an associate professor at the American University of Beirut. We talked to him on the 12th of August, about a week after the explosion. Overall, I'm okay. Yeah, no, it's fine. Conditions are not great, but what can I say? Unfortunately, having lived here long enough and grown up in a civil war, uh, there seems to be, you know, these cycles, and now we're in one of these cycles, and I fear it's, it might get worse before it gets better at this point. So um, there's no return to normal. It's hardly been normal for at least a year now, so it's not, it's not exactly like normal. It's something very concrete here at this point, but no, definitely no normal. It's a, it's a, uh, it was an extraordinary moment, uh, even by the standards of those of us that have lived here for so long. Uh, it really is an extraordinary moment where a big chunk of Beirut and kind of the port area and kind of surrounding areas were hit quite badly, but also areas 
uh, all across Beirut and, and beyond were actually had some damage, either glass shattered, doors damaged, and of course, just the overall kind of mental, psychological issues dealing with this and kind of trying to help. Many people have gone to volunteer to clean up. There's still the quite tragic situation of people who are now homeless, about two or 300,000 people who've lost their homes. We still have, I think, 40 or 50 people that are missing unaccounted for. And this is, of course, this is really quite traumatic for their families. Um, there were several thousand people wounded. Uh, the hospitals were overrun, but really performed uh, miracles. Given that the, some of these hospitals were already dealing with, you know, the COVID-19 patients. So there's been this incredible pandemonium. There's been a lot of uncertainty. There have been a lot of questions. There's been a lot of accusations kind of a going back to a really bad feeling that things might break down further. Amal Mudalali is Lebanon's ambassador to the United Nations. She witnessed her capital burst into flames from thousands of miles away in the United States. As her country's envoy, she's now at the center of the decision-making process for humanitarian relief, her top priority. Last week, France co-organized a virtual meeting with the UN to coordinate the world's relief fund for Lebanon, and countries pledged a total of more than 250 million euros. That's about 300 million U.S. dollars. In total, the UN's asking for $565 million to provide food, shelter, health care, and education to those most affected. We talk about multilateralism every day. But when you see it in action, you see how people come through and they come and lift you up and they stand by you and support you. It's really something, it drives the message very, very close to your heart. And we were happy that the French decided to have uh, the French president, Mr. Macron, uh, decided to have a conference in Paris and he invited uh, world leaders to support Lebanon financially and uh, see what they can do to helping them to get out of the situation financially and to rebuild. We are very grateful, but we want you to stay with us for long haul. We don't want you to be with us now for the emergency situation. And then the most difficult part comes when you want to rebuild. And the areas that were hit, they're devastated. And you really have to build them. You have to rebuild the, uh, the port because the port now is not functional. But one challenge of helping Lebanon is who to work with in order to make sure the money that is contributed to the relief effort goes to the people most affected. At least that's what people in the streets of Beirut ask for. In Lebanon, around 3,000 people are now homeless after the blast destroyed their homes. Food security is at risk and humanitarian aid for refugees has been rerouted to another port, jeopardizing this already vulnerable population. Lebanon is the home to more than one million refugees from mostly Syria and Palestine. While the reason the chemicals exploded remains unknown, some Lebanese blame rampant corruption and government negligence for the blast. The ammonium nitrate that exploded that day had been stored in the port for years, and there had been warnings about the danger in the past. Since the blast, people have taken to the streets to ask for a change of government, and much of Lebanon's cabinet resigned on August 10th. Lebanese are asking countries and non-governmental organizations not to give money directly to the government, accusing them of being too corrupt. 
Now, Lebanon is stuck between the desire for political change and the need for public institutions to lead the country through this crisis. Here's Makdisi on this. It's not so much the government itself. I mean, uh, unfortunately, we've been used to having quite ineffective governments and governments that are, you know, as, as well known at this point, quite corrupt. The issue is more some of the, the, the state authorities, now including some of those that are supposed to be leading the investigation, the judiciary, the army, or the security forces, all the kind of state apparatus. So that's in addition to the fact that there's no government. There's a lot of confusion and a lot of uncertainty, and frankly, in terms of public perception, there's not a whole lot of faith in any of these kinds of institutions to be able to conduct a kind of convincing or thorough uh, investigation. I'm not just talking sort of, you know, for political reasons. I'm talking about purely in terms of just not getting the right together, in terms of the lack of resources. There's a lot of good people in the country, this is for sure, but not mobilizing them properly not having a proper mechanism in place is something which I think a lot of people find quite troubling. The fact that there's a lack of government, of course, means that there's no overarching kind of political uh, guidance or accountability or responsibility that is able to push these kinds of investigations forward. Because now it's just a, it's a caretaker government with very little legitimacy and very little authority. So who's going to be pushing people forward? That's an issue Ambassador Mudalali is well aware of. In a way, she is part of this political establishment. She worked as the Foreign Affairs Advisor from 2000 to 2005 with the late Prime Minister Rafik Hariri. And she was American Affairs Advisor to the former Prime Minister Saad Hariri from 2016 until she became UN Ambassador in 2018. So we wanted to know what's being said in political circles in Lebanon, and more important, what changes she believes are needed to meet the demands of protesters on the streets right now. Here's what she had to say. The uh, demonstrations and the calls for change, they preceded this last uh, crisis and the explosion. Since uh, October 17, Lebanon has seen a huge demonstration and activists were in the streets for six, seven months calling for change. Therefore, a government was formed and people were very hopeful that there will be reforms. People were asking for reforms. And uh, unfortunately, after six months, nothing happened. And then the explosion came. Uh, in the meantime, the situation of the Lebanese on the ground got worse. People could not get their money out of their banks. The uh, pound devaluated. Uh, I mean, it was almost 70%, lost 70% of its value. Prices skyrocketed. People's lives were really, really uh, getting very hard and very bad. Uh, and then COVID came. And then the explosion happened. So it was a crisis on the top of a crisis, on the top of a pandemic and people were desperate. And after the explosion, I think people felt they can't take it anymore. And now they are asking for accountability. They're asking that their voice be heard again. And I think they deserve accountability. Uh, They deserve to know why this happened, why this uh, negligence uh, all this time. And uh, the calls for reform now are becoming deeper and people are asking for deeper reforms in the sense that they, some people are questioning, uh, unfortunately, the whole system. But to be realistic, to have change, you have to have also a pathway to change. And so far, 
nothing is uh, very clear on how the way forward. There's talk about uh, forming a new government, uh, and that's controversial also because there's no agreement so far on what kind of government you want. A national government, a technocrat government, a neutral government, uh, nobody uh, agrees on, on that yet. Some people are asking for early elections, um, and that also is not clear if it's going to happen or not. But the only thing that's clear is that the status quo cannot continue like this, and that change has to come. And the other thing is that the international community is putting a lot of pressure now because they want to see change, and they even tying the kind of aid they're going to give to Lebanon to the reforms because they don't want to give uh, money before they know that there's a path towards a good government governance in Lebanon and uh, and that people's uh, voices are heard. So far, there's no indication which way it's going to go, but uh, the hope in the country is that this time people are going to realizing that there is no alternative but to have uh, a different kind of uh, governance, a different kind of uh, uh, government, uh, a different kind of dealing with problems uh, and uh, business as usual cannot work anymore. People who are in government and civil service, these are institutions and they continue their work. I am a political appointee and political appointees are tied to the president and the president still has two and a half years, three years of his term. So it does not touch us so far, but it's very important that people preserve the institutions because any change will not be changed to the better if you start by destroying the institutions of the country. When you have uh, change, things will start uh, seeping down to, to all the institutions if you think these institutions are not doing their job well. This process of forming a government or any transition, whatever, it's going to take time. And in the meantime, Lebanon has to stay standing on its feet and whatever government comes, and I hope it's going to be a, a good representative government that represents the will and the ambitions uh, and aspirations of the Lebanese people for a better place and for a better country, uh, hopefully things will start moving forward. Two days after the blast, President Emmanuel Macron of France flew to Lebanon, where he walked the shattered streets of Beirut and offered support to the Lebanese government. France is a long-standing ally of Lebanon, but Lebanon is also a former French colony. The Turkish vice president even mocked Macron's visit as colonialist and called him a spoiled child in the region. So we asked Ambassador Mudulali how she felt about France's offer to help. We don't have that relationship with the colonial power because we always had a very strong and close relationship. France has always stood by Lebanon and helped Lebanon all the time since our independence and during the Chirac time they had Lebanon rebuilt and now Macron is stepping in also to do the same. People love France so we don't see it really as a colonial power trying to interfere. They're trying to help and they're not forcing anything on anybody. They're just talking to people, trying to bring them together, trying to find common ground between people and stuff like that. So I hope that uh, this support and goodwill remains. Kareem Magdesi sees the international help flowing into Lebanon with wariness. He fears that Lebanon, like so many other countries, could suffer in the long run from any external power struggle coming into Lebanon and doing more harm than good. There's a kind of balance between these three, the bottom-up protesters, this kind of French 
more traditional, let's say, French uh, initiative now to bring back the international diplomacy to try to stabilize the country a little bit, but without any particular radical changes that people have been demanding. And uh, this kind of American punitive pressure where this American administration and those in the very small circle around Trump basically view Lebanon solely and completely as an extension of Iran and effectively only understand it as a kind of country controlled by Hezbollah. And there's nothing else. There is nothing else in the mosaic of this country, in the fabric, in, the, in its history, in its culture, in its political makeup. Nothing, none of this counts. The only thing that counts is somehow trying to defeat Hezbollah. And this is an extremely dangerous uh, position. And so these positions are in tension now with each other. There are other things going on. There's other external factors now. Uh, the Turks are moving in, so their foreign ministers showed up. Uh, and they're now trying to see this competition, who's going to try to rebuild the Beirut port. The Chinese are, are kind of trying to uh, move in. Um, they've had their eye on a port maybe in Tripoli in northern Lebanon. The Russians are around. Uh, you know, so there, there's all sorts of external actors that are lining up and either trying to intervene or waiting in the wings, seeing how they can intervene. Ambassador Mutalali also weighed in on the potential power struggle. You hope that people are trying to help uh, for the sake of helping, not because they have uh, strategic interest only, because everybody does something for, you know, for strategic reasons too. So far, everybody is trying to help uh, just because the humanitarian situation is very, very bad. But in the end, it's going to be up to the Lebanese. You know, it's up to you how much you let people interfere in your affairs or not, how much you let people to take advantage of you or not. You, you decide the, the relationship. You, you don't, you know, not people, people outside don't decide how much influence you have uh, in other people's countries. You know, we de- you decide. So I think it's up to the Lebanese uh, to do that. And I think after so many years of being played as um, a ball in, in the region between powers and stuff like that, I hope that the powers that are around now, uh, they realize that Lebanon cannot really take it anymore. You cannot use Lebanon as a, an arena for solving your problems or for scoring uh, gains against each other or whatever. Uh, you know, before this happened, there was a huge movement for neutrality to have Lebanon as a neutral country. So there's a sense and feeling in Lebanon. They just want to be left alone. And while countries mostly agree they need to help Lebanon, in New York City, big powers in the Security Council are arguing over the renewal of the United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon, or UNIFIL. UNIFIL is a peacekeeping mission located in southern Lebanon, at the border with Israel, also known as the Blue Line Demarcation. The mission's mandate is due to be renewed at the end of the month. While the mission has more to do with security than with humanitarian relief, Security Council members are well aware that the needs in Lebanon are now more enormous than ever. So we looked at how the blast could affect the mission's renewal. But first, we asked Karim Makdisi about what the mission does in Lebanon and how effective it's been. So basically, UNIFIL, the, the, the UN peacekeepers that entered South Lebanon, uh, they deployed after the first major Israeli invasion into, into southern Lebanon in March 1978. And the Security Council passed a resolution 425 uh, that basically called for the immediate withdrawal of Israeli occupation forces from southern Lebanon and the kind of restoration of the Lebanese authorities and army and the kind of expression of sovereignty in South Lebanon as soon as Israeli uh, uh, occupation forces had left. 
In 2006, after the war between Israel and Hezbollah, the mission's mandate changed and got a boost from a new Security Council resolution. Hezbollah is an Islamist political party and a resistant movement. It is considered a terrorist group by the United States, the European Union, and many other countries. So the second stage was this massive Israeli invasion in 2006, ostensibly to defeat Hezbollah. And the Israelis had a huge amount of American support. In fact, some say that the Americans were actually pushing the Israelis to go beyond just South Lebanon and to try to uh, really uh, escalate in their invasion to the degree of trying to defeat Hezbollah completely. And that, that kind of seminal war as well lasted for 33 days. And the result of that war was that Hezbollah, in a sense, gained ground. They were considered to have won that. South Lebanon was totally destroyed. The southern suburbs of Beirut were totally destroyed. Various civilian infrastructure throughout Lebanon was destroyed. But in terms of politically, uh, Hezbollah emerged quite victorious, and the Israelis were certainly considered to have been defeated in the sense that they proclaimed very loudly that their mission was to destroy Hezbollah and to implement this resolution 1559 of disarming Hezbollah. And clearly, that didn't happen. You know, it, had, it transpired that Hezbollah was a lot more prepared, were a lot more professional, and they were a lot stronger than either the U.S. or the Israelis had understood at the time. The, so the result of this, it was that this war kind of ended, or this battle ended, when the Security Council passed this resolution 1701. And uh, the thrust of this resolution was, and it really was to call for a cessation of hostilities. So we still don't even have a ceasefire in Lebanon but a full cessation of hostilities uh, along the border between the Israelis and Lebanon. The idea was to make it a, a lot more robust, increase the scope and the size of UNIFIL. Uh, so I think there had been maybe two or 3,000 UNIFIL soldiers by the, by the time uh, of this war. And the discussion 1701 called for a maximum deployment of 15,000 UNIFIL you know, peacekeeping troops and increase the kind of level of equipment, personnel, attention, the budget, uh, and the very scope of, of what the UNIFIL mandate was supposed to do. So the UN mission in Lebanon is now more than 40 years old. Overall, it's been a stabilizing force in the region, but the United States and Israel have been pushing to reform it in recent years. Now, Washington is heavily pressuring the Security Council to change the mission's mandate, regardless of the Beirut blast. At least, that's what Jeffrey Feldman, a former UN Undersecretary General and U.S. Ambassador to Lebanon, told us in an email. He believes that the U.S. is even using a veto threat to get the changes it wants. One way to reform the mission, he thinks, would be to reduce the number of peacekeeping troops from 15,000 to 10,000, which wouldn't be a big compromise for other member states like France, because the amount of troops on the ground is currently at around 10,000 anyway. It's a suggestion that Kareem Magdisi echoes. Will the Israelis and Americans push very hard now in the renewal of the mandate? Yes. My understanding is there seem to be threats by some within the Trump administration that they might even want to veto the renewal of the mandate. I hope this is just trying to put yet more pressure on, in terms of the negotiations. My understanding is that the Americans, even within this latest consultations in the Security Council, are being quite undiplomatic in the sense of 
bypassing even France maybe and uh, talking uh, separately to various member states through or to kind of convince other members of the Security Council to gain support for what they want to modify the UNIFIL mandate. I think that they want to increase the visibility of UNIFIL and give it a much more aggressive posture. I think that's one of the one of the main ideas of, of what they're trying to push through. Uh, I think they want to get you know much greater access, push them to uncover uh, weapons, you know, just basically expose Hezbollah in, in southern Lebanon and to try to make it a much more aggressive type mandate. France is the penholder on Lebanon in the Security Council, and the charge d'affaires, Anne Gagin, said the mission was a, quote, five-star mission that operates with success in a particularly difficult context. France's goal is to renew the mission's mandate, but the U.S. is resisting. Still, Ambassador Mutalali is hopeful that the mission is there to stay, at least for another year. From my understanding, meeting in the Security Council, uh, most, the majority of the members they were very clear about how important uh, UNIFIL is and uh, its, uh, its role as a stabilizing force in the region. And they feel that this is really not the time to try to do anything that jeopardizes that role and peace and security. So the, the Lebanon really hopes that this mandate will be renewed smoothly so Lebanon can concentrate on other issues now that are on its plate uh, in terms of uh, focusing on internal security in the country and Beirut and trying to solve the problems of of rebuilding people's lives and building, rebuilding the economy and trying to, to have find a way forward in terms of government formation and stuff like that. So they, they hope that this mandate will be renewed smoothly without any change. This episode was co-produced by me, Casey Candela, and Stephanie Fillion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulce Leimbach is our editor and Allison Lecce is our intern. AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Pass Blue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to the Trump defect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, The New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends. 